Jesus has in, in Luke sixteen ten there are these there are these um, rules of faithfulness. There's three rules of faithfulness, and and this is this is what we're looking for as we're training emerging leaders, and that is that in Luke sixteen ten he said if you're you're faithful in a little before you'll have chance to be faithful in much, faithful with the temporal before you'll be faithful with the eternal, and then faithful with someone else's before you're faithful with your own. And so part of training emerging leaders is to give them chances to be faithful in a little, faithful in temporal stuff. So sometimes it's giving them a chance to serve. And then faithful in your ministry. You say, well, it's not my ministry. What well, is? God's given it to you. Faithful to serve so that you'll prove faithful when God gives you yours. So if you are a leader assistant, challenge youth, adult, um, then you want to fix your heart on those things. My, my goal is to make my leader successful. And if you talk to your leader, they'll go, no, no, that's not your goal. Your goal is to serve and, and serve the Lord. And, and yes, it is your goal. Because if your leader is successful, your, your group is successful, the kingdom is successful. So I'm going to go back up here because I thought that would be more personal. All it is, it's just harder to see people. <clears throat> oh, we have, I'll talk about this more. We do have coffee, <clears throat> coffee cups for you. And it's a um, Rodney designed these. Aren't these cool? And you can everybody here can have one when you leave. And they have the um, they have content on them, and you can put coffee inside. Get it? Content, coffee. Um, <clears throat> the content is it's the hard attitudes. I made the hard attitudes into single words. So we're gonna we're gonna train now for a while on hard attitudes. And hard, these hard attitudes have been a, a core foundation for our church since we began 28 years ago. They have not changed, either in, their, either in what they are or them being foundational. And everything, everything that, that our philosophy of ministry is built around these, these, these um, core values, these, these um, hard attitudes. But we haven't spent a lot of time, we, they just become a part of our culture. And so we haven't spent as much time, we do in new member we do it, but other than that we haven't spent as much time as I think we should reviewing them and going back on them because our culture is built on these and then pretty soon people don't even know that our culture is built on these. They, they're experiencing it, but they don't necessarily know what they're experiencing or why. Well, the problem is, as generations will go by and, 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 and what was built on those things will stop being built if we lose sight of those things. So this is not to address a problem, just like Roddy's not to address the problem. If you remember last year I talked about um, operating left of the bang. The bang is when an event happens. <clears throat> left of the bang is, is building resiliency skills so that when the bang happens, you can recover very quickly. A lot of churches are experiencing the bang and they're trying to develop their programs right of the bang, and that's, that's the wrong time. So this is not a response to a bang. Nothing bad's happened. This is trying to go back and be faithful to work left of the bang to make sure we're on the same page on these values. Values are principles, they're standards of behavior that shape a family or a culture. The Air Force has three core values. They're integrity, service before self, and excellence in all you do. That's the three things that the Air Force hopes to shape all that they do. All these planes, hundreds of thousands of airmen around the world. All the military branches have their own core values. Um, some of them have five, some of them have four, some of them have three. So we have these three core values 
character, excellence in all we do, service before self. So, since we have these core values and they're, and they're everywhere, they're on the walls, they're on websites, they're briefed. Why, I get this daily briefing email that has all the stuff going on in the Department of Defense, and every day there's some military member going to prison or being fired for violating these values. So, next slide. So when you see that question mark, it means I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to try to dialogue some. This can sound like, like a very obvious question, but, but I'm, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not meaning it like, duh. I really want to know, what are some of the possible reasons <clears throat> that the Air Force has these embedded core values, and they brief them over and over, and yet over and over Air Force members are going to prison or getting fired? What are some reasons for that? Throw them out. They haven't bought into the values. What else? Doesn't apply to them. Yep. All those are all those I can say are true from experience. What else? Yeah. 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 What's that? Yeah. That's right. That's right. They are. They're just slogans. I've seen. I've seen people. I've, I've sat with people when the Air Force values are being briefed. I've watched people roll their eyes. And that's what, that's what pe- people do crazy things. They throw away, I mean, there's three stars throwing away careers over some crazy thing. They're called core values. How do you, how do you, so they can't be tacked onto a person. And so how do you, um, to something to be a core value, it has to not just be taught, it has to be caught. So when I first came to the Air Force 21 years ago, I was at officer basic training, and the trainer was talking about core values. And I wasn't being facetious. I said, these are core values. How do you get a person to put these at their core? And he said, I have no idea. And, um, but, but, he, but he was right to teach it. But how do they become core? You could see the old covenant as values, <clears throat> trying to work on a person from the, from the outside in. The new covenant we could call core values or heart values, working out of a person from the inside. And I know the new covenant is Christ in you, so it's not a perfect analogy, but when Christ lives in you, in a real sense, he brings God's values into you as well, along with power. And the Air Force has great values and great equipment, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. But we do. So Jeremiah said, he prophesied that, the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel is I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And that's, that was talking about the gospel, where we live. So another question. What are some, what are some stated values where you work? <clears throat> and then what are some barriers you've seen? Well, different than what's been mentioned, but what are, what are some values where you work? How does the organization seek to instill these values in the company culture and what have been some barriers you've seen to that happening? So anybody have a culture where very, values are very clearly stated where you work? You know, the Air Force would, would try, and, and the Army and the, and the Navy and Marines, they, they, <clears throat> they try to find people. But the problem is <clears throat> they, can, they recruit out of what's there. Their, their pool is what society is producing. Guess what society is producing? And um, the, I've talked to our commanders and recruiters, and the, so you've got this, this many people in Wichita. 
have this many who qualify physically, for this many who qualify mentally, this many who qualify because they haven't committed a crime or taken drugs. And then out of that little small slice, how many do you think have the values in place? Very, very few. And so they're trying to, to fix that. So here's why we're addressing this <clears throat> here in, as related to small group, as small group leaders. When Sherry shared a couple weeks ago on the Next Generation Sunday, she addressed a number of things she'd seen in the youth group that demonstrated their growth. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in her discussion, she, she directly or indirectly addressed all seven heart attitudes. She built her discussion around seven heart attitudes. And what she was saying was that the youth group, our youth group is a values-driven culture. And that's why the kids who engage that culture consistently, like Sarah Swimmer said, <clears throat> the ones who, who invest themselves in it, they come out, they come out changed. So they have programs and they have personalities and our youth group has traditions, but it's not a, a program, personality, or tradition-driven culture. It's a values-driven culture. And our entire church is a values-driven culture. We do have programs, we have leaders, personalities, you. We have traditions, <clears throat> but values drive the culture. And cultures are shaped by what those who are leading the culture communicate, demonstrate, and celebrate. What they talk about, what they do, and then what they make much of. Those are the three things that shape a culture. And so these things, that these seven heart attitudes are essential to healthy church life and group life. And so let, let's parse out those, those four words, seven essential heart attitudes, First, why do we call them the seven essential heart attitudes? Well, because there's seven of them. Okay, you say, okay, smart, smart like, but why are there not five of them? Why are there not 17 of them? Why not 70 of them? Why these seven? Why not the whole Bible? Well, here's why. Because these are biblical principles that directly relate to life together as a church body. You might have others for your job, your fitness, your missions, whatever. These seven are a good summary of biblical principles that when consistently adopted, applied, as the Holy Spirit lives in people, they lead to healthy communities. They don't address all the church is to be doing. They're, they don't evangelism, discipleship, preaching, praying. They indirectly do, but not directly. These address the attitudes of the heart that reside in the members of a body that's healthy and growing. And so seven is because they're comprehensive enough to be effective. There's not one. Seventy, they're, they're simple enough to, to be useful. There's not 70 of them. And so they're essential. We call them seven essential heart attitudes. They're essential for effective community. People who are bored or unhappy, people who are not growing, people who are not on the edge of, min of ministry manufacture drama. I'm watching the, the, the Ken Burns Vietnam uh, PBS special, and whenever, whenever the, our soldiers were really getting addicted to drugs, whenever they were having problems and fratricide, it was often when they were out of combat. They were out, on the, they were out there in the combat zone, but when they're in combat, real combat, then the nonsense goes away. And the same thing is true in everyday church life. People who are engaged in the front lines of ministry experience life as a dramatic story, but they don't create artificial drama. And so <clears throat> they're essential for healthy community. And these hard attitudes address the realities of what a healthy community looks like. We call them hard attitudes because, as we've talked about in our discussion, you can't just tack them on the outside. We have the great privilege, the blessing, that we have the Holy Spirit. The Air Force doesn't. Coke, Coke has some people with the Holy Spirit in it. 
in them. But we, we are, we are an organization that is empowered, that was built by the Holy Spirit. And so we can actually see things become heart attitudes. In the Bible, there are three words that mean essentially the same thing, the heart, the spirit, and the will. So you see them used interchangeably. And what those are, those are three ways of describing the real inner choosing you, the real you, heart, spirit, and will. And it uses different words to describe different aspects of the real you. The heart describes its central position in our lives. So above all else, guard your heart because out of it flow all the issues of life. So the real thinking choosing you is this part of you that is core. It's central. It's called the spirit because it's distinct from the physical you. It's not your brain. It's not your body. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual you. And it's sometimes called the will because it is a part of you that initiates, that brings things into being, that chooses. <clears throat> it's the executive center of a human life. And so if you shape the heart, you shape the life. So these are essential heart attitudes. It's what we're after. And then they're called attitudes. We, you, you, you've said or heard you have a bad attitude. And what do you mean by that? Do you mean someone's thinking is bad or their feeling is bad or their actions are bad? And the answer is yes. What we think shapes our feeling, shapes our doing. An airplane's attitude, Kevin is almost done, with, almost has his pilot's license, his airplane's attitude is its orientation to the fixed ground. And our attitude is our orientation to the outside world, in this case to one another. We can't choose necessarily the fixed ground around us, the externals, what's happening with people, but we can always choose our orientation to it. And so these are not just merely boxes to check. These are attitudes of the heart that shape our lives together and impact our orientation to one another through our life and our circumstances. So um, we're going to skip that. We'll skip the next slide, Trace. Rivers, 28 years old this summer. How many of you are younger than 28 years old? I'm just curious. I want to see how many in here. That's awesome. Yeah, like like 40 percent of the of the of the, of the room is, is younger than our church, which I love. Um, I'm getting older. It's going to happen inevitably, but our church is staying young, and that's really good. We've had um, more trials and tragedy and transitions, both at, both as a whole, but also interpersonally. Things that you know, when you started twenty, when we started twenty years ago, if God would have said, "Here's some things going to happen to you." It would have been overwhelming, but you take them as they come, and, and God gives you the grace. But we have largely escaped, as I said, being a drama-driven church. We've been able to maintain a relatively consistent vision. We see things differently now than we did then, but our philosophy of ministry is essentially the same as it was in 1990. And this is both God's grace operational in our lives and our church but it's also the fact that we have lived with a settled philosophy of ministry, and the, and the hard attitudes have been key to that. Willard has a model for change, and it applies to individuals, but also to organizations. Visions, intention, means. A vision is, is the, the necessity to have some clarity as to what God has called you to as a person or as an organization, and to be able to understand and articulate clearly what that vision is. Intention is, is that you have decided... And you're just figuring out now how to live that decision. You've decided that you're going to pursue that vision. We don't get up and, de- and decide if we're going to pursue this vision. We have already decided. And then means are all the different resources and activities that you, that you can employ to, to move towards that vision. 
And these are the things that we do collectively to move towards a vision of knowing and loving Christ, knowing and loving God, and making God's love known to others. And the heart attitudes are part of that. So the seven essential heart attitudes, um, we're going we're gonna to walk through these together. I'm going to give you some scripture and then a little explanation, and then we'll have a time for you to do some, some, some quick private reflection. <clears throat> First, participate in the ministry. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, you should do as one speaking the very words of God. Isn't that amazing? If anyone serves, you should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 18 to 20, but in fact God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If all were one part, where would the body be? And then Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. These are just sample verses. This is not exhaustive. It was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ will be built up. Now, much of what's happened historically in Christian ministry has been perceived as the attempts by the few, the vocational ministers, to get the many lay people to do stuff. So my job is to get you to do stuff. That's how the perception's been. To show up for activities, to give money, to share your faith, to be nice to one another, to read your Bibles. Often this stuff is presented as or perceived as all the things you would never want to do if I didn't coerce you or convince you to do it. And I, I know that's sort of a caricature, but it's not far from wrong. On the other hand, there's another perception that pastors are paid to do ministry for us. That's their job. We have real jobs. And so there's these two pole positions. Pastors are trying to get people to do stuff they probably wouldn't want to do. And then people paying pastors to do their religious stuff for them. We don't live that way. We never have. All people, we believe, are called to a life of ministry, faith and love and action. Some vocationally, others what we call lay ministry. Lay ministry, layman has come to mean a novice or a non-professional. But that's not what the word originally meant. The word lay comes from a Greek word, laos, which means people. So I'll give you a verse where it's used several times. You are a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, laos, belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, laos, but now you are the laos of God. So lay layperson, it means the people of God, called people of God. And so the hard attitude of participation in the ministry is a vision of life in the kingdom. It's involvement and engagement with what God's doing in the church. And when I, came, when I started walking with God across the street at Wichita State, I came alive. I see myself as, a, as walking aimlessly, and I came alive when I saw God wants me to be involved in the lives of people. And it was compelling for me then. It's never stopped being compelling for me. And the reality is that the church, when it's taught and trained and released to do the ministry set before him, we quickly realize that's where life is. That's where we want to be. That's on the front lines. You say, well, what about, what about ministry outside the church? And, and what I mean is, of course, our church meets and then releases to do ministry outside of church in your workplaces or whatever. But I'm talking about parachurch ministries, churches, that, that organizations that, that like Focus or, or Youth Horizons. The church, and we, we support parachurch, but the church 
not the big C church, which is all Christians of all time everywhere, the little C church, local bodies. When the Bible talks about church, it's mostly talking about little C churches. It's talking about these communities where people are being shaped in the image of Christ. Youth Horizons focus, these parachurch are arms of the church. They only thrive when the church thrives. So, at times, these parachurch organizations rise up to meet a need that the church isn't meeting. But if you ask Brad, if you ask Ernest, what the priority of the kingdom is, they would say the church. So, a key question to put before people that you lead when you're talking to them about participation in the ministry, whether it's time, talents, or treasure, is, and you may not do it this directly, but this is the idea, if everyone participated in the ministry at my level, my giving of time, talents, and treasures, would the ministry be sustainable? If not, then am I letting others carry the load I should be carrying? And so here's why this is a hard attitude. Someone, should someone else be paying with their time, with their money, with their energy, what I'm benefiting personally from. So let's, let's circle back around to that in just a minute. So let me give you just about two minutes to contemplate or talk to your leader assistant or your spouse. How can you communicate, demonstrate, celebrate this hard attitude in your group? A vision for the joy of joining God in your ministry. Having the ability to ask people to serve and seeing that as being good for them. So take a couple of minutes to think, pray, or talk to someone next to you. Just a real quick couple of minutes. Okay, I know that was really, really quick. I told you it'd be quick. But I want to I just, maybe you can have these conversations when you get with your, your leader assistants and your, and your leaders. You can talk about these things. Second hard attitude is demonstrate an open and honest life. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your, another, to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for others to build them up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives, well, let me read it in the, in the ESV. A fool, gives full, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. That means his, his mind, his heart. But a wise man quietly holds back. Another translation said, Only a fool says everything he knows. So, there's some things that this means, some things this doesn't mean, obviously. It doesn't mean saying everything you know, telling everything to everybody. But it, this, this hard attitude of open and honesty is essential to healthy relationships. A relationship doesn't survive, certainly doesn't thrive, without appropriate openness and honesty. An open and honest life is a life of humility and faith versus pride and fear. Pride and fear can keep us from living this hard attitude out. Humility is the opposite of pride. Faith is the opposite of fear. So part of what this means is trusting God with your reputation, your image. You don't have to say everything right, get everything right. Sharing what's actually real about what's going on. It doesn't mean telling everything. It means telling what's appropriate to tell to the appropriate people. And so the spirit of this value is that you don't hold back in fear and pride. It doesn't mean you say everything to everyone. That's folly. But the spirit is that you tell what you should tell to who you should tell, and you don't let fear or pride hold you back. People are challenged by your strengths, and they're encouraged by your weaknesses, and they need appropriate honesty both in your strengths and in your weaknesses. This is about authenticity. 
This is essential for personal growth and relational growth. Humility is something that God empowers. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes. He comes against the pride. So if you live in pride, you have made God your opponent. That's a terrible idea. Faith is the opposite of fear. God is pleased by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So one of the things you want to think about, contemplate, how can I model humility and faith in my group through an open and honest life? And then also, what does this not look like? How do I make sure this does not turn into something bad? Which, if I ask for stories, I could get lots of stories of how this has gone bad. But because it's gone badly doesn't mean we stop doing it. It means we do it right. We we maintain an appropriate balance. Let me talk just one minute about confidentiality. Generally, you want to keep in group what is said in group. Otherwise, you're going to short-circuit open sharing. If word gets around that what's said in group is getting spread around, then why would people trust to share in group? However, when you, a leader, need help thinking through an issue, event, You just don't know how to deal with it, what to do with it. And I'm not talking about something that's legal, like an assault, but just some issue in a person's life, or even that you've heard something that's creating a sort of secondary trauma in you. It's becoming kind of your own issue. Then it's appropriate to take those things to staff member. This is not a betrayal of of confidence. Doctors will share to get consultation. Military chaplains will talk to other military chaplains. It's not a breach of confidentiality. The goal is to provide the best possible help and to stay healthy. So I say that to say confidentiality is really important in your group life. But don't, don't take that so far that you, that you aren't getting the help that you might need in certain situations. Third is to maintain clear relationships. And, and I'm going to use one scripture here. And it's a scripture where Jesus said if you're offering your gift at the altar... Which, which means essentially you're in worship. You've come to worship, and there, remember, your brother has something against you or sister. Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to, your, to that person first, then come back to worship. And what this demonstrates is that it's impossible to have clear relationship with God if we don't, as best we can, have clear relationship with one another. And it becomes this, this vicious cycle. John wrote that if you don't love your brother who you can see, your sister you can see, then how can you say you love God who you don't see? I saw this hard attitude in practice twice last week. I saw people maintaining, gaining clear relationships. And it is, every time I see it, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Peace, reconciliation, joy, and freedom. So, what are some barriers... What are some barriers to maintaining clear relationships in community? Three important things in terms of maintaining clear relationships. One is the, the, the circle of confession should equal the circle of commission, which means if I sin to God, then I confess to God. If I sin against God and my wife, I confess to God and my wife. If I sin against Josh and Kevin, then I confess to God, Josh and Kevin. So you try to make sure that if I, when in the past, when I was unkind to my wife and the girls were watching and they were little, then I wouldn't just confess to Christy in the room, bedroom. I'd bring the girls in and confess to Christy because, you know, that's their mom and I sinned against all of them when I did that. So you want to keep the circle of confession, circle of commission as close as possible. Be proactive and faithful, but realize this can take time. Sometimes um, we want to we make things get right now. 
there's time that sometimes you be proactive, but there's time, sometimes it just takes months. Sometimes it takes more than months for, for things to fully um, even out. And then there's just the limits of the reality that it takes two to make a relationship. It, may, it takes one to break a relationship. And so a key verse here is Romans 12, 18. It's as far as possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so that's the limits of the reality that sometimes the other person will not let you uh, make things right or won't make things right with you. And so what do we do when someone refuses to live in this hard attitude? Well, we, we wait and pray. We want to give an appropriate amount of time. We don't force it. We love and forgive. We take care of right column stuff. What can I do? And, and then if there's someone who lives in persistent, ongoing public sin, unrepentant sin, then there's this rare and difficult necessity called called church discipline, which we've only had to um, initiate twice in 28 years. And um, it's a process that's in the scripture for going to person who's living in unrepentant, persistent public sin. But that's, but that's rare. The heart behind the attitude is our assumption. Here's our assumption. We're going to sin against one another. Our commitment, we're going to forgive each other. So how do you communicate, demonstrate, celebrate this in your group, what might it look like in practice? And some of you, this is no theoretical thing. (laughs) A lot of you, this is very practical. This is something that you experience on a regular basis. Um, So, yeah, let's take take two minutes and let's talk about, um, try to stay away from actual events, but talk about maybe from your experience or just from what you know of Scripture, what are some of the... um, the difficulties of maintaining clear relationship, what are some of the things that have been uh, effective in group life for making this happen? And if you haven't been a, a, you're not a seasoned group leader, then, then speculate. Go ahead and discuss for a couple of minutes. So does anybody know, does anybody know and is willing to admit, or anybody know Philippians 2 verses, like verses 2 to 3? Anybody know those by heart? Don't put them up there yet, Trace. Anybody know them who would be willing to try? This is like super church. I, I, I do have candy right here if someone... <laughs> anybody? Okay, start it. Well, that, that, that's, that's, that's an executive summary. That's good. <laughs> anybody, anybody know it? Anybody else want to try it? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or... Okay, got it, Kevin? Each of you should look not only to his own... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Being in nature, yeah. Abby, you know it? Give it, come on, give on. Come on, you guys stand up and do it in stereo. Come on. Abby, I'm going to stare at you till you say it. Come on, I'll say it with you. Each. That's good. That's good. I'll give you some candy when, out, of the, out of our box out here afterwards. 
So in John, John 13, 14, it talks about how Jesus said, I, your teacher, washed your feet. You should also um, do as I have done. Set that example. Um, he set that example. We should live like that. So a couple of questions. One, what does this hard attitude not mean? Put the interests of others ahead of yourself. So first, what does it not mean? How could this be misconstrued? Any thoughts? Neglect yourself. Neglect yourself. Yeah, that's a bad idea. What else? Yeah. What else? That you should just let people take advantage of you. Yeah, that that's, that's not good for them. What else? Well, the next question. All the hard attitudes are essential. This one is foundational. Why is that so? Why is this one foundational? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's how all of them are demonstrated, you know. Yeah, it's, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the greatest commandment. It sums up all of the law and the prophets. Love God, heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others as you love yourself. And so I, I think families, cultures, groups of people, friendships, rise or fall on this principle. Your, your, your company's core value, the golden rule. If you're going to have a one single core value, I would say that is the one to have. If I seek your best, you seek my best, we thrive together. I put me first, you put you first, things fall apart. And, and the analogy in the scriptures is a human body. When the human body starts, the parts are at odds, self-seeking, the whole body suffers. So we put each other first because we honor Christ above all. This is not primarily about jumping in front of a bullet for somebody. In some ways that would be easier than what it really looks like. What it really looks like is several years ago a person in our church um, thought that I was upset with them, thought I didn't like them. They're a very shy person. And they came to me one day and asked me if, if, um, if they'd done something to offend me, if I didn't like them or whatever. And I, I had no idea. I was oblivious, which I frequently am. I was just oblivious. And I was so glad they told me. And they were both living an open and honest life with me. And they didn't accuse me. And, it, and he, they were, he, he was visibly troubled telling me, I mean, like, not mad, but nervous. But he was putting my interests first. He could have just went through life just thinking I'm a jerk or thinking whatever. But really, that was an example of putting my interests first. Number five is submit to church leadership within scriptural limits. First uh, Thessalonians 5 we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to those in authority because they keep watch over you as one who must give an account. Do this so your work will be a joy. Their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And sometimes in military retirements, they have a, a flag folding, and, par- and I don't like them. I've, I, they're... they're I mean, they can be moving, but parts of them are, are annoying. One part that can be annoying to me is a quote at one part of the flag folding, a Revolutionary War sailor named Stephen Decatur, who said, My country, may she always be right, but, but, but she is my country, right or wrong. And he could mean that when the country's right, the country needs to, the country's wrong, I'm going to set it straight, but that's not really what he meant. But he meant was, by golly, this is my country, right or wrong. That sounds like loyalty and patriotism, but it's misguided. It was said of the Willow Creek Board that they 
they chose loyalty to the institution and to a man over the truth. That's not loyalty. Loyalty is to the truth, not to an individual. But that loyalty was going to show up. Loyalty to the truth is going to show up in relationships, or it should. And so unless the leader asks you to violate Scripture or a law or your conscience, then the biblical principle is submit to the leader as unto the Lord. This is not me asking for more authority. This, I, I don't have any issue with this. I haven't had in 28 years among our leaders. <clears throat> but the, because the balance is found in the wording of the hard attitude within scriptural le- limits. And that's really important. And <clears throat> we submit to leaders so that because they give an account, I give an account for my leadership to God. And if my work is a joy... It's a benefit to the people who follow me. And I'll tell you, my work is a joy. Glenn can tell you of heartless, I mean, I mean heartbreaking number of pastors whose work is not a joy. And that is a, a, not, a, not a benefit to the people who follow. So <clears throat> apply this to your leadership in your group. Think about your own group. God uses principled leadership for his purposes. And this is not new to you. There, there are a limited, there's, there's, To simplify, there's a couple of types of leadership. There's positional leadership. There's personal leadership. Positional leadership gives you the privilege and responsibility of leadership with a person or a group. It is appointed or assigned leadership. They put a rank on your shoulder. They give you a a, a sign on your desk. You're the leader. That's positional. Personal leadership is through your life and sacrificial investments in people. You have the privilege and responsibility of leading people that's earned. They're giving you leadership. Ideally, in, <clears throat> that there's, in, in spiritual leadership, there's both. And as a group leader here at River, you have positional leadership in your group, and you have personal leadership in your group. In our church, you were given a position of leadership. You were called a group leader because you had earned personal leadership in the way you lived among others. There are, however, people in your group who are going to be new to your group who are going to follow you because you have positional leadership, but they have not yet had a chance for for you to earn personal leadership in their lives. And so my challenge is leading confidence knowing God has called you. You have positional leadership. God has called you. Terry didn't call you. God called you. Lead sacrificially, making it easy for others to follow you. That's personal leadership. Personal leadership comes through personal sacrifice. There are times when you're going to have to lead in ways that might be unpopular with a certain group member. There's times when you're going to have to choose the good of the, of the many over the good of the few or the one. One um, leadership expert said that most, in his opinion, all leadership, but I'd say most leadership failures, he said, are a failure of nerve. Lead kindly, but lead confidently. So... Something that I'd like you, not now, but something to, to write down to contemplate maybe during a quiet time is, how do I make it easier for my group to follow me? What am I going to do when someone makes leadership difficult? What might a failure of nerve look like? What happens in organizations, churches, families, businesses, is you can have a person who is the complainer and the leadership begins to try to submit to the complainer. Meanwhile, you have all these people who are just ready to get after it, who are suffering. Think about King David when all these troops went to, went to battle as his son rose up to try to take over the kingdom. 
And they sacrificed. Some of them died for him. And then they won the battle. But Absalom, the, the, the one, died. And so David is slinking around in the White House like he lost the war. And the prophet came in and said, your people just laid their lives down for you and you're slinking around. They're feeling like cowards out there. And so it's really helpful as a leader when you have the one person who doesn't like you or thinks you're doing something bad and your, your focus just wants to go to that person. Everywhere you look, you see that person. Stop. you got all these folks that are ready to go to war with you. Don't have a failure of nerve. Lead. And there, there's, always, there's always somebody who's unhappy with me about something. I don't ever like that. But I can't have a failure of nerve because there's so many people that are just ready to go to war. So, number six, support the work of River financially. <clears throat> I said River because support the work. We're talking about River, the ministry God's called you to. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8 says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. This is talking about giving money. Each of you should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word in the Greek, I love the word, is hilarion, which we get our word hilarious from. So God loves a hilarious giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. I'll... I'll I won't read 1 Timothy 5 right now. I'll get to that at another day. Then um, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is that your heart will be also. This heart attitude is a very physical action. It's giving money to the church, but it addresses three important character or heart issues. One of them is faith. This is really important for people. This is a, a kind of a, a rubber meets the road, a heart attitude for many people. Am I going to trust God to provide for me if I obey him with my giving? <clears throat> Do I have to make sure I have enough? Before I trust God, or will I trust God? It shows up in values. Is God and his church valuable to me such that it shows up in how I use my money? It's related to privilege responsibility. Will I be faithful? And this is a very important part of a healthy culture. So if you have people who are enjoying the building, enjoying the fruit of the efforts of youth ministry, of the programs, and yet they're allowing others to pay their way, this is a mismatch of privileged responsibility. And so you have to keep asking yourself and your members, what would happen to the ministry I enjoy and rely on if everyone did what I do? It's a really important question to ask. Now, God does provide for our church. We're not going to take an offering tonight. That's not the point. Every month as we hand out our pay stubs and our staff meeting, I, Brenda gives them to me and I hand them out and we take them and we hold them and we thank God for you and we thank God for his provision instead of just sticking them in the, in the bank. We, we, we know, we know the sacrifices that you make, but we know this is God's provision. So a couple of questions. Why give to River? Say, I give elsewhere. Or someone says, I give elsewhere. That's partially answered in the biblical principle of privileged responsibility. It's also answered in the biblical mandate that the local church is the heart of God's global mission in the world. And so since God's called people to be a part of a body, we want to engage the privileged responsibility balance that's required of any healthy relationship. If someone else is paying my way, then I'm not being faithful where I am. When Ernest, was a, when Ernest Alexander came to Christ as a, as a young boy, eight, nine years old boy, he would have to go. He would go sack groceries 
for some change and he would take home and he would, his mom would use that to buy food and pay the gas bill. He wasn't buying toys with it. He came to Christ as a young boy and he would take, before he'd take the money home, he would take 10% and put it in the offering plate, take the rest home. And his mom, who wasn't a believer at the time, would beat him. And she came to Christ. She was a great lady. I called her mama too. But she gave up because she beat him and he would not stop doing it. And she, and you, he, she would say, he said, you can tell me to do anything, but I'm, but I'm not going to stop doing this. You can have different um, convictions about tithing. But what is clearly in Scripture is that, <clears throat> is that our, 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 where, where our heart is shows up in what we treasure. So Jesus told the story of a man who found the pearl of great price or a treasure in the field. He happily sold everything to buy the field of the treasure. That's not a parable about giving money to the church. It's about giving your life for the gospel. But it demonstrates the biblical principle of giving, which is joyful and generous giving. I'm not leaning on you. I'm not asking you to go lean on other people. I'm telling you what the scripture says, what Christy and I have experienced together for 35 years. I'm not selling anything. There are no promises God's going to replace you $1 for 10. It's just not there. But what he does promise is he will show up in practical and powerful ways when we operate by faith and sight. And giving money is one of the ways that's most difficult for people to operate by faith. So here's some issues related to giving for you and for those you lead. Say, well, if I can't give cheerfully, maybe I shouldn't give. No, you should give from obedience and then close the gap on learning to be a hilarious giver, learning the joy of giving. You say, well, is the tithe 10% biblically required? Different opinions? My opinion is, no, it's not required, but it's a good starting place. It, it comes from Malachi where the prophet says, well, the man robbed God, yet you robbed me. And he says, well, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. <clears throat> tithe means 10, 10% and then above that. You're under a curse, a whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So you say, well, that's Old Testament. <clears throat> and he says, I'll open the floodgates. I'll bless you. I'll pour out blessing on you. You won't have enough room for all the blessing. It's, it is Old Testament, and the tithe is not repeated in the New Testament. But what's in the New Testament is gospel giving. Gospel giving is not a percentage. It is a joyful and generous giving. Gospel giving is surely not less than law giving. But it is joyful and generous. So it is our conviction, Christian, not mine, that for 35 years we've given even when we didn't, couldn't afford to give. We've given. And say, well, another question is, well, I don't give to the church. I give to other places. Again, <clears throat> one question to ask is if everybody did what you did, would the ministry be sustainable? If you ask Ernest, Ernest has told people when he found, not from River, he doesn't tell me who these people are, but when he found out people were giving Youth Horizon and not giving the church, he's gone and asked them to stop. Please don't give to Youth Horizon. So let me just tell you my heart on this. There's been a lot of harm done to the lives of people and the reputation of Christ by unscrupulous people making unbiblical claims and living unbiblical lives regarding money. It's terrible. That fact has led me to say very little about giving for 28 years. Very little. And I probably reacted to the imbalance with my own imbalance. Because, and the reason why is because giving money is where I've seen God reveal himself in my life and the lives of my friends over and over. I should not have kept so quiet about this. I was worried about my reputation. 
They're going to think I'm after money. They're going to think I'm one of those people. Why should I care about that? I'm not after anybody's money, and I'm not one of those people. This is what the Scripture teaches. I shouldn't have kept quiet about it. So think about it. Pray about it. How do you lead your people to generous and joyful giving? And then they are going to meet God there. They're going to, they're going to meet God there. It's not going to be in necessarily in money, but it probably will be. There will probably be ways in which God will provide that will surprise you. Number seven, the last one is give and receive spiritual correction. Matthew 18, if your brother and, or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another. And encourage means to speak courage. It can be words that are challenging as well. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so you won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then Hebrews 10, 24 says, consider how you can spur one another on. Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, we want to grow up into the fullness of the body of Christ. So this is a giving and receiving. This is something that we should be learning to find joy in. We, I, got a, um, I got a rebuke email this week from a, from a, a church visitor. Got it today. And my first response was... <laughs> and because um, it, it just wasn't... It, it's just not the, the, the case. It was their experience, but I'll tell you what it was. They, you know... Church, very unfriendly. Nobody talked to me except the pastor. All right, go Terry. I, and, um, and, um, and very unfriendly church. You just want to know that. You guys are, you know, not a friendly church. The same week that that person referenced, a, a guy I'd never met before said, this is the friendliest church I've ever been to. Everybody's talking to me. And so I, my first thought, not really, but I'm like, well, let me tell you what the guy said the same week. But it's not right. I just... If that person felt that way, that person felt that way. And, and the old me would have deleted the email or responded some other way. And the right response was, thanks for telling me. You know, we're trying to do better at that. We always need to do better at that. We'll keep trying to do better at that. And I can't say I love getting those emails. <clears throat> but we, but we want to we learn to love correction. And then we want to see giving correction as something that's showing love to people. To see correction more like glasses for someone. You know, they can see. Wow, I can see. And, and if, you, if you can't see, if everything's blurry, then corrective lenses are a good thing. My, my brother-in-law, he was like, he said, I was like middle school before I, before I, I knew you could see um, the lines between telephone poles. I didn't know you could see those things. Or that you could see individual leaves on trees. He just thought everybody saw big green blobs on brown sticks. He didn't know. <laughs> Proverbs 25.11, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of, settings of silver. Aptly is a word that has to do with timing. The right word at the right time is a thing of real beauty. That's what this verse is about. So I want you to see, um, give and receive scriptural correction as this. It's not easily giving rebuke. <clears throat> It's earning the right to speak to people. It's telling someone something. Speaking the very words of God. It's not nitpicking people. What it means is I need, to be, I need to love people enough to be willing to not be liked by them at times. They may be unhappy with me. This is less likely to be true 
if you're making lots of investments in them. So it doesn't need to come across angry. It never should. I, I really regret the way in which I've corrected people in the past, years gone by. I regret it a lot. And it's helped me in recent days to think about this as truth-telling, not truth-selling. Selling has a lot of control in it. Selling has too much me in it. Truth-telling has more of God in it, more of them in it. I've leaned more recently into asking people questions like, instead of looking at their life and just, you know, this seems amiss, this seems amiss, but asking questions like, are you satisfied? What do you want? How can I help? Those are better ways, of, in my mind, of giving spiritual correction. Spiritual correction can sound, sound ominous, but you should think of it more like going to the optometrist, you know, better here, better here, better here. Not everyone's going to take it that way, but if you would see it that way, no one, no one who goes to the eye doctor says, what a jerk, you, you know, he, he, he gave me these lenses and I can see 20-20 now. Not everybody's going to receive it that way, but we need to see it that way. We should receive it that way. We should see it as, and, and I can tell you that I did come to see this email as, as um, an opportunity. We, we always need to do better. So it's not like we always love it right away, but we need to come to love it. So in conclusion, you guys, gals, guys are at the front edge of our church. Leaders always are. And if, if, we, if we run, others walk. If we walk, others sit. That's generally how it goes in leadership. It's important that we run out in front, not to be impressive, but to bless people, to lead. Unless you think that this is a lot to ask, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, and this is, I am utterly convinced this is true from experience and from Scripture, leaders who run out in good, run out in front of others for the good of others and the glory of God benefit more from that than anyone under their leadership because leadership is a responsibility and is equally a privilege. And as a leader, you will get to experience God in ways that people who don't lead will not. You get to set the culture by what you communicate, demonstrate, celebrate. So let me just walk through these real quickly and give you the heart behind the attitudes. Participate in the ministry. I'm going to serve where God's placed me. This is my family. Demonstrate an open, honest life. I'm going to let others into my life in ways that honor God and blesses others. Maintain clear relationship. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to seek to be forgiven. Put the success of others first. I'm going to seek the good of others, not merely my own good. Follow biblical leadership. I'm going to follow Christ by following leaders for the glory of God and the good of the body. Support the church. I'm going to treasure Christ. I'm going to trust Christ by supporting the spiritual family he's put me in. Give, receive, correction. I'm going to look to the needs of others by being, being willing to offer and receive and learn through God's grace to love correction. That's the hard attitudes. That's what our culture is built on, not perfectly, but I think beautifully.